So let me have a word of prayer and we'll get going here. Lord, we do thank you now uh, that we are yours. That we are the children of the Most High God, the citizens of the heavenly realm. That we are numbered among the saints. And Lord, we thank you that we are complete in Christ. Lord, that he is our source of everything. Lord, that in him we have everything necessary for life and godliness. He uh, provides us with the righteous standing that we need to approach you with confidence. Lord, he is the one who provides us with the acceptance. And Lord, I thank you for Paul's letter to the Colossian believers as it focuses so heavily on the Lord Jesus Christ and how he uh, makes so clear that we as believers need nothing other than what Christ has provided. Lord, there are those who would try to tell us that we need something else, something in addition, but it's all in Christ. And Lord, as we come to realize that, may he increasingly become our focus. May we not be so focused on our own lives and trying to fix them, but may we be <clears throat> focused on him and let him transform us from within. Lord, I thank you for your Holy Spirit, for his teaching ministry in each of our lives. Lord, we pray that we would be open <clears throat> and receptive to his ministry this day. For it's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Okay, we're in really the final main section uh, of Colossians, and we will be for a few weeks here. Um, I will remind you of the overarching theme that pulls this letter together. It's that the Christian life finds its sole source in Jesus Christ, who is preeminent over all things. And once Paul got beyond his opening comments, we saw he spoke about his prayers, his prayers of thanksgiving, his prayers of petition for the Colossian believers. And we saw that in those prayers, what he uh, made clear was the completeness of Christ's work. Uh, you know, he thanked God for the impact that Christ had already had in the lives of the Colossian believers. And when he, and when he uh, brought his petitions to the Lord regarding the Colossians believers, it, it wasn't that God would give them anything else, but that they would develop in the area of wisdom and knowledge and understanding. And that's what we need to be praying for ourselves. We don't need more of anything. What we need to do is come to an understanding of who we are and what we have in Christ. And learn to appropriate it. You know, in Colossians, Paul tells us, In Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in Him. How can we need anything else? But, do we really grasp what that completeness means? Do we really grasp all that is ours? And, and that's where the Christian life is a journey of learning and appropriating what we've had since the moment we were saved. And the more, and, and that journey involves us coming to look at Christ more and more and more, to become focused on Him, getting to know Him. He is our source. 
He is the true vine. We are branches of the vine. And for our lives to be thriving and fruitful, we have to live in connection with Him. And so, you know, that came out in Paul's prayers. Then he moved into the area where he helps us understand why Christ is sufficient. And he talks about Christ in relationship to creation. Uh, Christ in relationship, well, first of all, God, Christ in relationship to God. You know, he's the image of the invisible God. Uh, Christ in relationship to uh, creation. Christ in relationship to the new creation. And how he is the reconciler and he did it through his blood. And then after uh, focusing on Christ and who Christ is in relationship to God, creation, and the new creation, Paul then takes on uh, and speaks about his own ministry. His ministry, he said, was to preach Christ. Paul focused on one thing, or one person, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he desired that everyone would become mature in him. But he knew that it came from an ever-growing knowledge and intimacy with Christ. And then after that, we saw he took on those who... Um, challenged the sufficiency of Christ. Those who wanted to bring in, uh, it appears, the uh, Greek wisdom or the Gnostic knowledge or the regulations of the law. And he, he deals with how all these fall short. In fact, he said, you know, they have the appearance of something that would work, but they don't. Why? Because the flesh can only, uh, the flesh is never going to control the flesh. Now, we've entered into really this final section where Paul begins to bring everything that he's been saying down into the realm of our lives. And as I pointed out last week, it is so important that we do not separate this section of the letter from everything that's gone before it. When the Colossians received it, they read it through as one letter. We've spent weeks on it. And it's so easy when you get to this section to somehow leave all that stuff we've been seeing behind and then just focus on this and what do I need to do and and lose sight of the fact that Paul has been arguing all along that it all flows from our relationship with Christ and the new life that we have in him. Now, today we pick up verse, at verse 10 of Colossians 3. And let me just go back and pick up at verse 8 and read forward because it, it kind of completes a sentence. But now you also... Put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old man with his evil practices, and have put on the new man who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. 
Now Paul, we saw last week, exhorts us to put off these sinful actions because we have laid that old life source aside. And as I pointed out just as we closed last week, it's, I think, significant to note that Paul doesn't exhort us to cease from doing these things that the old life might be done away with. He challenges us to turn from these things because the old life has been dealt with. And we've seen that the way the old life has been dealt with is that it has been crucified. It's been nailed to the cross. It's been put in a place of judgment. It's not dead and gone. I think most of us recognize that. There are those who hold to one naturism which says the old man is is dead and gone. But then they have to do all sorts of verbal gymnastics to try to explain why we still struggle with sin. And the reality is, the old man isn't dead and gone, he's crucified. He's put in a place of judgment that will ultimately lead to his demise, but he's not gone, he's still there. But Paul's arguing, look, the old man has been dealt with, we need to quit, you know, yielding to him, we need to put him off, set him aside, And now we are to live as those who have a whole new life source. We are to put on the new man who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So here Paul reminds us that we have a whole new identity from which a whole new way of life can flow forth. And that new life is in union with Christ. Now, I know that many modern translations talk about the old self and the new self. I have huge problems with that translation. And for, I think, good reason. You know, uh, this is one place where I do go lean more with the King James Version. I like a lot of the newer translations, but on this one I I do go with the King James. Because the King James used to translate it, the old man and the new man. Which is more accurate. The Greek word, there is a, a Greek word for self. It is not used here. The Greek word used here is anthropos, which is the word for man. It's the word from which we get our word anthropology, the study of man. Now, why do I struggle with this? Well, while the old man is very much a self, the new man is not. Self, by definition, is a person or thing referred to with respect to complete individuality. It's completely individual. The new man is not completely individual. The new man has a symbiotic relationship with Christ. It does not exist without connection to him. In that regard, it is not a self. I don't have a new independent life. The 
only independent life I have is the old Adamic life. And so I think that terminology can be misleading because it, it leads people to think somehow they've got a new individual, you know, uh, life, and they don't. The new man is in Christ. It is a, a, a life, well, like in um, John 15, Christ talks about, you know, him being the true vine and we being the branches. We're connected to him. In fact, the picture Christ gives is that a branch separated from the vine is going to be as fruitful as a stick of firewood. Some people see, you know, his analogy of the branch, dead branches being thrown into the fire and they uh, think we can lose our salvation. I don't think that's the point Paul, I mean, Christ is making at all. His point is that, you know, a branch that's not living in connection with the vine is nothing more than firewood. It's, you know, up in... Uh, Wisconsin, we had a fireplace. I had a, pa a stack of firewood behind the house. I never picked any fruit off of it. It's not fruitful. And this life, this new man cannot be separated from Christ. That's important. It's not designed to live independently in any way. It is not designed as a new self. Now, I threw a, 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 an extra couple of slides in here this morning when I was studying because, you know, this brings up an issue. Okay, why on earth did God allow the old man to remain? Why did he deal with him this way? Why did he merely crucify him but still allow him to exist. Still allow him to plague us as we go through the Christian life. Why did he not just do away with him? Because one day he is. When we're in the eternal state, we are not going to have two natures. We're only going to have the new man that is going to be living in union with Christ. So why does this old man still exist? Well, we can theorize some things, but, but there's a list of seven things. I think these were provided by Miles Stanford uh, as to why the old man is allowed to remain. One, to reveal the depths of sinfulness from which we were saved. And I think that is an important reason. You know, we came to Christ as our Savior because we recognized we were sinners. We were recognized that we could not get into heaven on our own. But our awareness of us being sinners was largely on the basis of some of the bigger sins. We really did not grasp how incredibly sinful we were. 
I think early in our Christian life, we pro- most of us probably felt like the statement that in my flesh, the old nature, there dwells no good thing. Isn't that a bit of an exaggeration? But this ongoing struggle with the old over the years shows us the depth from which we were saved. You know, as we go through that Romans 7 experience like Paul, the good I want to do, I'm unable to do, and the evil I don't want to do, I continually do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me? (laughs) We begin to appreciate all the more fully what we've been saved from. And I've been been a Christian now for 64 years. And I'm still learning what I have been saved from. So, God, I believe, has allowed that struggle within to remain, to teach us these things, to show us these things. Secondly, to teach ourselves, uh, teach us to count ourselves dead unto the old and alive unto the new. In other words, <clears throat> to walk by faith. We don't walk by sight. You know, I am called upon by the Lord to consider myself as having died to this. It's not dead, it's crucified, this old man. But to count myself dead to it and alive to this whole new realm. To take God at His word when He says, Reckon ye yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin and alive unto God. Reckon means counted as true. God would never call upon us to count a lie as true. If he says, count this as true, it's because it is true. And so, you know, we are learning to live by faith as we, as we, you know, take God's view with regards to the old and take God's view with regards to the new and learn to live in that way. Thirdly, to teach us to abide in the Lord Jesus above. I cannot deal with sin. I cannot deal even with the the sin nature apart from Christ. It's these struggles on a day-to-day basis that teach me to learn to live in Christ above. To keep my eyes on Him. To walk with Him. To abide in Him. To teach us to walk in the Spirit below. You know, Paul in Galatians says, you know, Walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Yes, I am to keep my eyes on Christ above. But I am to be led and taught and, you know, by the Holy Spirit below. And I learn to walk with Him. Day by day. In the upper room discourse, Christ, when he spoke of the coming spirit, said that he would take what was Christ and make it known unto us. And it says, I 
walk in the Spirit, that the Spirit teaches me more and more how to abide above. I like a statement that Miles Stanford makes. He says, you know, we often hear keep looking up. He said, in reality, we need to learn to keep looking down. Because we need to learn to see ourselves with Christ in the heavenlies, looking at things from his perspective. Rather than us down here as humans looking up, see ourselves in him looking down on the things that are going on in our lives and in this world around us. Fifthly, I think this is a significant one. To glorify the Father and manifest the life of the Lord Jesus despite a fallen nature, body, and world. You know, as we live here in these sin-cursed bodies, as we still have a nature that is bent towards sin, as we live in this sin-cursed world, what can truly glorify God and to, to glorify God is to really manifest forth his perfections, what he's capable of. And certainly God can produce a Christ life like in someone who has no sin nature, who has a totally uh, redeemed body and who is living in a perfect world. But what God is demonstrating is that he can produce a Christ-like life in somebody who still lives in a sin-cursed body, in a sin-cursed world, and still has a nature within him that's bent towards sin. Does that not demonstrate more fully the abilities of God? You know, um, some months ago, I spoke in church, and I, I spoke on the issue that, you know, God is revealing things about himself during our time here in this world that he will not be able to reveal in eternity. Once sin is gone, there's going to be certain things God can't reveal about himself. He's revealing some very significant things about himself and his abilities through these two natures within. Sixthly, I think the longer we live, the more we appreciate this last, I mean, (coughs) excuse me, this next to the last one. To give us a good cause to watch for his appearing. <laughs> the more we struggle with sin and this old man, we long for that day when, <laughs> when we're going to be in his presence. You know, we look forward to it. Uh, early in our Christian life, a lot of them, we, a lot of us felt like, oh, there's still so many things we haven't experienced. You know, we weren't necessarily real anxious for the Lord to return. But as you get to be many of our ages, not all of us in this room, but uh, many of our ages, uh, we've we come to that point where, wow, Lord, I just want to be with you. I want to be there. 
And then seventhly, to give us a greater appreciation of eternal glory. When we are one day with him, after the struggles we've experienced here in this world, we are going to appreciate it all the more. If God had just, the moment we accepted Christ as Savior, took us into his presence... I don't believe we would have appreciated as fully what we have there as we will at the end of this journey. We will really appreciate the contrast. That's why, again, when I spoke a few months ago, I said, you know, I've heard people say, we aren't going to remember uh, all that went on in this life. I, I said, man, if that's true, this life's been a waste but I think we will remember. We will remember. And, and it will make us appreciate all the more <clears throat> what we have there with him. Now, in this list, he went on to say, in that there are two distinct natures seeking expression by means of our as yet redeemed body. We must keep them separated in our thinking. In itself, the old nature is ever strong to do evil. Only by the Spirit is the new nature strong to bring forth righteousness. And that's why I said earlier, the new man is not a new self. It can't do it independently. It has to rely upon the Holy Spirit to take those things that are Christ and make them manifest in Him. It comes from that abiding relationship. This old man can sin very well on his own. And as he says here, we need to uh, keep them separated in our thinking. And this will become important as we move forward through this letter. Because as Paul describes what our Christian life is intended to be like, he's doing it on the basis of the new man. And because a lot of Christians do not keep these two separated, a lot of them when they read what it talks about describing the Christian life, they start trying to make the old man look like that. A lot of Christians spend the majority of their time here on earth trying to make the, the old man look like the new man. And you can't do it. So now we have this new life which is in Christ in which Christ is being formed in us. And from it is to flow a whole new way of life. Now, as Paul talks about putting on the new man, it is seen as putting on something that has, is a completed work. I am a new creation in Christ. You are a new creation in Christ. But... The transformation into, in our daily walk is a progressive thing. It's an ongoing work. 
So, you know, at times we talk about position and condition. Or position and practice. We've been made totally new positionally. When God looks at us, he sees us as a child. He sees us as a saint. He sees us as a joint heir. He sees us as a heavenly citizen. But learning to live like that is an ongoing process. We are transformed, how? By the renewing of our minds. I've got to learn to see myself in Christ. Moment by moment, day by day. Keeping my eyes firmly fixed on Him. As the writer of Hebrews says, looking unto Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. And Paul goes on in verse 10 to point out that this transformation in our day-to-day practice takes place as the new man comes into an ever-deepening knowledge. He says, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. And the word translated True knowledge here is the Greek word epigenosis, which is an ever more precise and correct knowledge. As we become better and better acquainted with Christ, as we become more and more aware of his provisions for us, we will increasingly be transformed into the image of of our creator but it's a process and I will point out I think I said this the other week but I'll say it again the new man we we receive this new man in an infant form (laughs) he's not omniscient we get him in an infant form and he grows when it talks about us growing and growing in grace, it's talking about our new life in Christ, that it is growing. It's not talking about the old man. It's remaining the same. I really hope you get that in your minds. Doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian, your old uh, nature is still the same as it ever was. In fact, sometimes it appears worse. And that's because, you know, when you were an unbeliever and this was all you had, this old man, you became pretty proficient at times at making it look good. But the more time you spend developing your new life in Christ, the less proficient you are at dealing with the old man. And so when you step off into the old life, it looks worse than ever. As I've said several times, the more we grow in the Lord, the more schizo we look. Because we can, we can slip off of who we are in Christ and step over into that old Adamic life and it looks nasty. We need to realize that. 
And it's not that our new life has gone backwards. It hasn't. It's that we've stepped over into a realm that never changes. We need to have a healthy fear of our old nature. I do. I have a healthy fear of what it's capable of. And it keeps me, keeps pushing me more and more back towards the Lord. You know, Jonella and I say, we, get, we do reasonably well as only, if only one of us gets in the flesh at a time. <laughs> if we both get in the flesh simultaneously, that's when the fur begins to fly. You know, when the flesh responds to the flesh, things can get nasty. We say things we shouldn't say and say them in ways we shouldn't say. If one of us gets in the flesh and the other still in the spirit, we have a tendency to, to, to go along. And the, the one that is in the spirit continues to be gracious and, and works along with the other one until they come back around and begin to recognize that, you know, we stepped off into the flesh. And hopefully the more you grow in your relationship with the Christ, the more time you'll spend in the, in the realm of the new man and the less time you'll spend in the realm of the old. And you'll recognize when you step into the old very, very quickly. It will become obvious. If not to you, to everyone around you. <laughs> and hopefully you and your spouse or something if you're married can reach a point where you can graciously tell the other one look I think you've stepped off into the flesh you know I think this is the flesh that's showing up this isn't who you are in Christ early on you can't do that because then the flesh really gets its hackles up but Paul goes on to point out that this new life we have in union with Christ doesn't contain the distinctions which so characterize the old life. Verse 11, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcision and, or circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man. But Christ is all and in all. Now this old Adamic life, this old man, is constantly drawing distinctions between itself and others. There are those that are similar, there are those who are different. And Paul simply draws upon some of the distinctions that were uh, present in the early church that would have been present there in the church, uh, or at least in the culture there among the Colossians. There were Hellenistic Jews and non-Hellenistic Jews. And the you know, the Hellenistic Jews were the ones that had kind of uh, been affected by Greek culture. The non-Hellenistic Jews were the ones that uh, continued to follow more of the Hebrew culture. And, you know, uh, there were Jews and there were non-Jews or Gentiles. 
there were those who were part of the Greco-Roman world and there were those who weren't and they were considered the barbarians. And even the barbarians had distinctions. <laughs> there were the uh, Scythians who were kind of a, viewed as a lower form of barbarian. And then there were, of course, the slaves and those who were free. And in that day, those distinctions created prejudices, which impacted the way they treated one another. You know, the Hellenistic Jews were critical of the Hebraic Jews, and vice versa. In fact, the whole reason the first deacons were appointed was because there, there was, uh, you know, uh, disagreement between the Hellenistic Jews and the non-Hellenistic Jews, or the Hebraic Jews. Uh, they didn't think they were being uh, treated fairly. And so, you know, they uh, appointed deacons to make sure that they were all ministered to equally. Now the Jews, of course, looked down on the, on the Gentiles and they treated the Gentiles with contempt. But the Gentiles were equally, uh, uh, equally showed contempt to the Jews. Anybody that was outside of the Greco-Roman culture was held with contempt. But those who were outside of the Greco-Roman uh, culture hated the Greeks and the Romans whom they saw as an unwelcome presence. And even the outsiders had their own prejudices among them. And of course the free man looked down on the slave. And the slave despised the one who was free. Now little has changed. We have different groups but similar prejudices. There are denominational distinctions. There are cultural distinctions. There are racial distinctions. There are natural, uh, nationalistic distinctions. There are educational distinctions. There are political distinctions. The list goes on and on. Now there's vaccination distinctions. And each of these distinctions... If we're walking on the base, uh, looking at them on the basis of the old man, each is going to color the way we treat with the other, each other. But Paul says that in the realm of our new life, which is in Christ, no such distinctions exist. First of all, Paul says that Christ is in all. Everything that every believer has shares a common source, and that source is Christ. You are in Christ, I am in Christ. And that new life source gives us a common identity. You and I and every believer in this world shares the same family. We're all part of one family. We all share a common citizenship. We're all citizens of the heavenly realm. 
We all share a common destiny. We're going in this, to the same place. And we're even all part of the same body. Now Paul goes on to say, not only is Christ uh, all, but he also says that Christ is in all. I do not have more of Christ than you do. And you don't have more of Christ than any other believer in this world. We are all equal. Christ becomes the great equalizer. And the more we see that, the more the divisions within the body will be broken down. We need to see that we are all in him. Now we've already seen that, you know, in putting off the old, we turn from certain things. We put these things aside. We do not allow our bodies to be used for its sinful purposes. But the Christian life isn't meant to be primarily defined by what we put aside, but what we turn to. Some very positive things. And we're going to have to end at this point, but uh, let me just uh, read uh, verses 12 and 13. We'll pick up uh, there next week. <clears throat> and so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Now we'll look at this next week, but let me say again, it is this new life in Christ that's going to do this. It's not the old Adamic life. Oh, we can make it, the old Adamic life will try to make an effort to, to do these things, but it will not be real successful. It can try to act kind, but it'll be an act. Can act to try to act humble, but it won't be true humility. You know, uh, the old man can try to, to mimic these things, but it, it will never be really successful. And that's why I say, as we move forward, we've got to remember all this flows from the provisions that Christ makes. As I come to see myself in Him and live uh, as uh, branches of the true vine, then. As I, I'm putting off the old and putting on the new, the new has the capacity to have this kind of life. And we'll talk next week about why these kind of things go along with putting on the new. Okay, we're out of time. Let me just close there. Lord, we do thank you now just for the new life we have in Christ. May Even this week, may we grow in our understanding of what that new life is. And Lord, may he become more and more our focus. And as he is, Lord, may the Spirit increasingly take his uh, provisions and make them uh, a reality in our daily experience. Lord, we look forward to the time of fellowship we'll have together now in the main service. We pray that you would be exalted through our songs of praise. And Lord, that we would... Again, grow as we uh, get into your word and learn more of the truths 
found therein. First, in the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.